Church, it, it truly is an exciting time to be with you this morning. I, I want to begin uh, our time together by just doing a bit of a recap, a quick recap on where the Lord has brought us through, and not just this past week, um, but maybe a little bit even farther back than that. And so we're at a pretty exciting time in the Bible. I hope that you're in the reading plan. Again, shameless plug. If you're not, you should be. But if you're in the reading plan, you've been through some exciting things. We're at a very uh, cool time, if I can say cool. That's a very interesting time. And so we've seen God stretch out his hand with the ten plagues, and he's smitten, he struck Egypt all the way up to the last plague. And that's what we looked at last week, the Passover plague, and how God finally said that in the final plague, he said, you're going to let my people go. He struck Egypt, he struck Pharaoh, and, and Pharaoh says, get out of here, get out of here. So they, they needed a deliverer, and, and God sent one. That's a, that's a high moment for them. They make it then to the edge of the Red Sea. This is a, this is a beautiful story. Only to realize they're there, they're, they're exciting, they're hopeful, but then they turn around and realize that the army that just sent them away is now pursuing them, and now, to beat it all, they're trapped. And now they need an escape. And God becomes their escape. God becomes their protector once again, a deliverer and now a protector so they rush through the, 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 the dry floor of the Red Sea. And as Pharaoh's army comes in and on top of them, behind them, the waters close in and destroy them. We celebrated that last week. And what a beautiful, beautiful picture here. Everybody's singing. Everybody's dancing. They needed a warrior. They needed a defender. And God provided that as well. But now they're all thirsty, right? Now they're in the wilderness and they need something to drink. And if you'll see this cadence, how the, the children of Israel are in need and God sends. God hears, he sees, he knows, he sends. He comes to them. It's this beautiful cadence that we see. But they're thirsty, they need water, right? And that's, that's vitally important for humans. And so what does God do? Well, he provides them with water. And then they need food and so he provides them with quail and manna. Just constantly meeting their needs. Then they need water again and he gives them some more water. Then the Amalekites, they attack them. And they, need the, they need a defense. They need a victory. And what does God do? God gives a ragtag bunch of uh, Israelite Hebrew slaves. He gives them victory. It's a beautiful thing. And then they need order because they're in disorder. They don't have systems to work in. And what does God do? Well, he provides them with some order. It's a beautiful thing, again, that God just continually comes to them again. Against all odds, Israel actually makes it to the base of Mount Sinai. God had brought them there, exactly to that place. And I like to think that that first night as Moses is walking through the camp, he sees tent poles coming up together and everybody's excited because they've seen so many great things happen and they, now they've, they've journeyed all day and now they get to break uh, and just take, uh, build camp right there. And as Moses, their leader, walks through, he, he begins to reminisce of what they've been through, what I just shared. He looks out, he gazes out, and he sees something in front of it. It's a, it's a mountain, and then he realizes, wait a minute, I, I know this place. I, I've been here before. And his mind goes back to Exodus 3, where we've read that God said, Moses, I'm going to send you to Egypt. And Egypt, Moses says, how can I know that you're going to do this? What, what's going to go, how's this going to take place? How, how will I know? Give me a sign. And in verse 12 of Exodus 3, God says, I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you. That I have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God. God says, you'll serve me on this mountain. And where does Moses find himself there with the children of Israel? Here in Exodus 20, Exodus 19 and 20, at the base of that very mountain, the mountain of God. 
as a precursor to the sermon, just as way of introduction, I just want to share that and throw that out there and emphasize that for you this morning. God has made promises. God has made promises to his people. I want, I want, to, just, I want to call your attention to just think right now as we enter into this time of worshiping our holy God. I want you to think back. Can you imagine a time where God has promised you something and then you came to the point where it was realized? Did you ever take the time to praise God for that and to really thank him? You, you asked him for something. You in faith believed that he would give you something, that he would rescue you from something, that he would meet the need that you had, be it spiritual or physical, whatever it is. Have you taken the time to, to just praise God for that? What a beautiful thing as Moses finds himself at the base of the mountain. All they've come through and he's at the very mountain that God promised to bring him to. And when it looked bad, many days it looked like they weren't going to make it. And yet God was faithful. God is faithful to Moses. He'll be faithful to us as well. And I hope that you can rest in that this morning. So they'd arrived. And there at the foot of that mountain, God calls them together And he gives them the Ten Commandments. And I want to give you some information about the Ten Commandments before we go any farther, before we read the scripture together. And that's this. First, the the commandments are foundational. These Ten Commandments, I want you to think of them as, as being foundational. As you read in your reading this week, you'll notice that after Exodus 20, there's still quite a few laws. You're like, well, this is ten, and then we've got quite a bit more. And and we won't get into all the details of all these laws. There's quite a few. As as a matter of fact, the the, the Jews, God had given them 613 laws. This is just 10 of them. But I want you to realize that those 10, the Decalogue, stood as a foundation to all other laws. They were the foundation to all other laws. And if you'll notice that sometimes we see this law says thou shalt not murder. And then there's other laws about murder that are sub-laws, right? They say, they they kind of build on that. And the best way to understand that would be this, to to say something like this. Negligent manslaughter is illegal in the state of Maryland. You you may not have known that. If you didn't know that, you're welcome. uh, If if you forget that, I'll I'll come visit you. But negligent manslaughter, accidentally killing somebody because of your making a, a foolish mistake, not intentionally, but still making a foolish mistake, being negligent, is illegal in the state of Maryland. You could, get a, you could actually pick up a 10-year sentence from that. Okay? Now, that's a, that's a law. That's one of the chief laws, right, in the state of Maryland. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that the laws are trying to protect my life, the life of my family, and your lives as well. There's a sub-law that's underneath of that, and I'll, I'll mention it to you. That, by the way, that first law, negligent manslaughter, that's been around for a long time. Before, the, before the, the advent of the automobile, right? Before the, the, the advent of the tin can that, that holds beer. And so there's another law. That's impaired driving. That's also illegal. It's a sub-law. It's a sub. It's underneath of negligent manslaughter. So that's the relationship between impaired driving and negligent manslaughter are, are, this, are similar to the Decalogue, the, the top ten commands and all of the laws that God has given. Do you understand that? Now, it's almost like Russian nesting dolls. They're they're inside of one another, right? They're subsets of that. And if you look even deeper, if you go to the New Testament, what does Jesus say about all the law? He says, if the Ten Commandments are a picture frame, he says, if if all those, and you've probably seen a picture frame with the Ten Commandments on it, so this will be helpful for you. It's got a piece of glass in the front. It's got four wooden pieces that are glued and, and tacked together, and they're holding that picture of the Ten Commandments. Jesus said that all of those things, figuratively, they all hang on two laws. And, and, that, and, and, and the first one is this. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second one, Jesus says, is just like that one. Again, a subset of loving God. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But the second great command 
is to love your neighbor as yourself. So you understand the relationship. I think it's important that we see what's, the, what's so significant about the, the top ten, these, these ten commandments. Well, they, they are a good summary, a good picture of what God is calling his children, his people to recognize. I also want you to, to realize that the, the ten commandments at this point in time are a bit of a new thing for the children of Israel. Now, the idea of not killing somebody was not foreign to, the, to those people. And everybody knew it's probably not a good idea to kill somebody, right? People knew, like, hey, I don't like to be stolen from, right? And so there's, there's some laws in different lands about different things. But the Ten Commandments, as we know them today, were not a thing. They had not been given. And so it's hard for us to imagine because they've always existed for us, haven't they? We've just always known. They've always been referenced and cited by pastors, by teachers, by grandmothers, by, by mothers. And thank God for them. So the Ten Commandments, they, they've always existed for us. They're no-brainers, but they weren't for the children of Israel, especially the first four, which were, again, foundational to the entirety of the law. So to the Israelites, they were four, and this is a new law. It's a new way of life. It's, it's quite a difference, by the way, coming from Egypt to Canaan or to, or to Sinai, and coming from the leader being Pharaoh and all his so-called gods, now just coming to one God, and his name is Yahweh. So it's quite a challenge for them. And so try to imagine living in a time where the Ten Commandments did not exist. With that in mind, with that place, I want you to jump with me into the text. And so we're in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 all the way down to verse 21. So if you have your Bible, turn with me. If you don't have a Bible, you can read from the screen. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. The Bible says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the the people were afraid and trembled and they stood afar off. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you 
that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. And the people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. May God bless the reading of his word. I ask you to pray with me again. Father, these are your words. We ask that you would bless them. We ask that as we look to them today, as we pour over them, that you would enlighten us. Spirit of God, we pray that you would give us guidance into truth this morning. Spirit, I'm weak and I, I, I can read your word because you've given me that. I can't apply it. That's your job. You, you, I can't change a life. Only you can do that. And again, we pray that you would change the lives of those are get, that are gathered here today. With the power of your word and the power of your spirit, God, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to just at the onset point something out to you. After God had given these rules and these laws, the people were afraid. Did you notice that? It says there that they stood afar off. They, were, they didn't want to come near. And they said, Moses, will you talk to us? Will you explain? Don't let God speak to us. Don't let God come to us. We don't want to be crushed by him. We're, honestly, we're afraid of him. And many of you say, well, that's kind of terrible, isn't it, that we'd be afraid of God? I want to just encourage you to, to, to think of the, the truths that are being presented here this morning. God is not a God that is, without, uh, that is all uh, bark and no bite. And God is, not a, God, God is not somebody to be crossed or to be trampled with. You think about this. The God of the universe that has created everything in it has created all of it for his glory. The Bible says that he will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And the, the children of Israel are saying as they hear the words of God thundering, they tremble and they realize that, by the way, in 19, they say, we'll do, we'll enter into covenant with God. Whatever he says, we will do. They wrote him a blank check. And now as God reads off and quotes out these rules that he's given to them, these laws, they tremble. As if, as if saying, we can't keep these. This is too heavy. We were afraid. And in all this, as we enter into this, this uh, time of exposition, I want to just encourage you to look at this. The main idea, the main point is this, that the holy God demands holiness from his people. The holy God demands holiness from his people. In other words, God is holy. He's altogether different. He's altogether above. He's pure. He's blameless. He's spotless. He's perfect in any way that you can imagine. And in contrast, we are not. But the problem is he demands that we be holy just as he is. He demands it. That's the first main point of the text. As we come here to the mountain of Sinai, we hear God saying, because I am, you must be. And stay with me. This, this, is, what, this is what we're looking at this morning, but it doesn't end here at Sinai. We're going to end this morning at Calvary, as every sermon in some way should. But here at Sinai, God speaks to his people and he says, because I am, you must be. So if God's people in those days are to worship him, if we today are to worship him, we must be holy, we must be pure, and we must act righteously. And that's the overall premise, that's the overall idea. And with our first point stated, let's jump into it. So verse one, the Bible says, and God spoke all these words saying, many of you could quote this with me because you memorized it as your Bible verse. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's a gift to us and to the children of Israel here, that God would introduce himself, that he would introduce himself, not just by saying, I am the Lord, but by saying, I am the Lord who did this. He points back to what he has done for them, even recently, even as recent as just a few days and weeks ago. 
And what he's saying when he says, I am, remember, he's pointing back to the fact that he is the existent one. He is the, he's the one that actually exists. And what he's doing is he's kind of stomping on the heads again of, or, or of the chests of the dead gods that he has just destroyed, that he has proven don't exist and have no power. He's saying, I am Yahweh. I exist. And in that he's saying, and there's no other God. No other God exists. I am the God that has done these things for you. And what have these other gods done for you? And right off the bat, God is introducing himself and he's connecting to the, to the fact that God, we, we, the God that we know, we know by what he's done. Think about this, by the way. We talked about the fact that they did not know the Ten Commandments before this moment. They didn't have them. Imagine this. How did they know anything about God other than what he had revealed to them by his actions? How did they know God's character other than by watching him, by hearing him speak, by seeing his faithfulness, right? As Moses got to the base of the mountain, what did he say? He said, wow, everything God said that would happen, everything he said, he did. Every promise has been fulfilled. And now Moses does what? Moses says, okay, I know something more about Yahweh. Yahweh is a promise keeper. Yahweh promises and he delivers. And that's, what, that's how we know anything about God. Imagine that in your life too. As you look through the word of God and you see him working in your life, how do you know about God? Through the word, but then you also see him working. You say, yes, I know that I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. I hope that's your testimony here this morning. The Israelites there, as they hear God speaking, they're saying, he is the God that delivers. He's the God that makes promises and he keeps them. This God that is organized, that when he speaks, he doesn't just speak randomly through thunder. And he, he's not left to be ambiguous. Like, what, what did he mean by that? In contrast, stand, or on the ground lay, the Egyptian gods. That everything that they said, everything that they did was subjective, right? The God of the sun or the God of the Nile. If, if it floods, maybe they're angry with us. Oh, it, it's the sun has come out. Now they're pleased with us. Now it's raining again and the water's rising. Now they're angry with us, right? Everything was so subjective for them. For God... Not so with them. This holy God that they were beginning to even more intimately become acquainted with was revealing himself as a faithful, steady, holy God. And this faithful, steady, holy God had his own rules to give. You see, when the children of Israel were in Egypt, there was laws there too, weren't there? Maybe they weren't spoken as clearly as God is speaking here, but there were laws there. As we walk through these Ten Commandments this morning, I want you to see that there's the way of Pharaoh and there's the way of Yahweh. There's the way of the world and there's the way of the church. We see that very clearly this morning. I want to draw those out to you. So right off the bat, God says, I am the Lord your God. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So God's cleaning house. He's deposed the king at, at, uh, in Egypt and now he's going to repeal Pharaoh's laws. He's going to repeal those rules here at Sinai and he's going to give his own. So this first one is a question of authority. You'll have no other gods before me. What it, what it is, it, he's saying, it, it's, it's saying, it answers the question rather, who will rule us? Who will rule over us? Who will we submit to? And God answers that question. There's nobody else. It's only me. By the way, I've earned this spot. I deserve to be followed by you. I am your God. But it doesn't just answer who will we submit to, but it also answers who will submit to us. It answers who will we rule over. Oftentimes we miss that, don't we? You might say today, well, there's no God but God. And then you'll treat other people in your life 
as if you are their God. You ever thought about that? There's only one God. Of course, you would never say otherwise, would you? And yet, do you live your life as if you are a God? As if other people exist to bring you glory? Let that marinate on your shoulder. Rest in that just for a moment. Think of how Pharaoh lived his life. He ruled Egypt for his glory alone. He he made subjects of all those around him, especially the defenseless and the helpless. He he forced Israelites to do his work so he could benefit from that. He murdered babies, children, to protect his agenda. We won't go back into that story, but he was a terrible person. Everything, uh, every resource that he saw, whether it was living or not, was consumed for him on his altar. He was a god. Now, someone, someone, you might say, well, I, I, they didn't actually believe Pharaoh truly was a god. I would, I would argue that they did. They believed that he was a deity. And besides all that, we see him acting as if he's a deity. And my question for you this morning is, are you acting the same way? Do you look at your spouse and say, not say, you'd say to your spouse, there's, there's no God but, but Yahweh. But then you make that your spouse submit to you as if you are their God. You, make that, you, you look to them to give you glory, and you're frustrated when they don't. This is the act of Pharaoh. This is, these, this is the whisper of Pharaoh. It sounds just like his voice. These are his actions. We see in, in Pharaoh this succinct summary of all that is gross and terrible in this world. And I, I, I don't want you to miss this. Everything that we see in Pharaoh, it's just a gross picture, succinctly, of everything that is wrong with this world, isn't it? You look at him. Everything was all about him. Everything that we hate in the Herald Mail, everything we hate in the USA Today, everything there, it's all the whispers, the echoes of, of Pharaoh. It's all the echoes of the world. That's where it comes from. It sounds just like it. We hear even in this terrible action of choice, choice, choice. What do we hear in that? We hear the echo of Pharaoh. I am your God. It's all about me. The warning for you this morning is to check yourself. In, in grace, God reaches out to you this morning and says, you are not God. You are not God. So don't have any gods before me and don't treat other people as if you are the God. I alone am God. This is grace extended to you, fathers and mothers. Your children are not to bring you glory. That's not what they're there for. Grandparents, that's not, their job is not to bring you glory. Your, your job is to bring glory to the only true God that, that exists businessmen, managers, do you view your job as some way to to garner praise and glory to yourself? There's only one God. There are no other gods besides Yahweh. This is the way God is saying. This is the way that you lived in Egypt. This is what you experienced. This is what you saw, but not so at Sinai, and not so in Canaan. And by the way, it's not so in the church either. There's only one God. His name is Yahweh. Next look at verse 4. The second command says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, I am the Lord your God and I am a jealous God. It says, you're not, you're not going to make any image about me. And this, simil- this command is actually similar to the first one that we just saw. It's got, if you look at the, the background behind it, the, the, the undergirth here, or the underskirt here, it's, it's actually saying the same thing. It, it's difficult to look anywhere in Egypt and not see some type of a likeness or image or icon of a, of a goddess or some, some sort of deity, 
It's almost impossible to look anywhere. Even on Pharaoh, there was some symbol of deity on him in the way that he dressed. If you looked all around the world, all around Egypt, there's monuments built everywhere of gods. And so they were going to be, that's how it was in Egypt. That's not how it was going to be at Sinai. And that's not how it's going to be in Canaan. So God makes it clear that he can either be made or manipulated. That's one of the problems with an icon. That's one of the problems with a carved image. You can determine where it goes. You can determine what it sees. You can even turn the idol that was on your dresser or on your coffee table. You can even turn it to the corner to where it can't see. And God is saying, I am not that type of a God. I am not a God that you can stand above as you sit it on the ground or you, I, that you can kneel beneath as you, as you raise it up high and at your pleasure. He will not be manipulated. That's not the type of God that he is. So just as, his, just as he says there is no God, he also says you shall not make a carved image. And there's several big truths here. The first that, that we see in this is that the symbols for deity, they were actually stamped on all the heinous acts that were taking place in Egypt. All the terrible things that we observed, the enslavement of a people for such a long time as this, that was the will of the gods. It bore the, the stamp and the approval of the God and and. and and God, Yahweh says, that's not going to happen. Not at Sinai and not in Canaan. It's not going to happen. You're not going to put my name onto some terrible act that's taking place. Not in my name. No, you're not going to do that. Again, that happened in Egypt, but it will not happen at Sinai. So he's not going to allow his, his image, his picture, his name to be used for any selfish purpose. And, and, and I said name. Look down at verse 7. This is a, this is a very similar command with a very similar idea that, that God is getting after here. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So we read that, you say, well, what, that's, what's that got to do with a, a carved image? Well, it's more than what you might think at, at first glance. Uh, the Jews and, and your grandmother, they have it right. This is saying that we should reverence the name of God. It's saying that. And so stop taking God's names in vain. Stop using them in vain. Don't, don't treat God's holy name as if it's a triviality or if it's some kind of a joke. It's not. He's not the butt of any joke. And so we should reverence the name of God. But it's more than that. That's not just what it's saying here. This, this command is, is actually leaning somewhere else. In addition, Pharaoh was using that role again, that, that role, that position to justify his heinous acts in the name of God. And God's saying, no, that's not going to happen. It's not, it's not going to happen. I, I've got sad news for you, by the way. In just, uh, in just a short amount of time, the ads are going to start again. And they're not going to seem to, be any, to give any reprieve. And, and you know the, the drill. There's a 30-second clip, and it, it just totally annihilates the character in the life of an unsuspecting politician, right? And at the very end of that little blip, what's it going to say? My name is, or I am, so-and-so, and I approve this message. So many times I'm like, I don't care how heinous this person actually is. The fact that you would air that out on public television and then sign your name on it is just, I don't know which one's worse. What's more disgusting? Seriously? Right? You know, we we look at that and God's saying, I don't do that. Nobody's going to just throw my name. That senator, that presidential candidate, he didn't make that ad. Now, he might have, he's definitely on board with it. He didn't make that ad. And yet his name is stamped at the end. And God is saying, you won't do that with me. You're not to do that. You're not to stamp my name. You're not to use it flippantly and just say that this is all the name of God that's not going to take place. 
Again, it happened in Egypt. It's not going to happen at Sinai. It's not going to happen in Canaan. And church, it shouldn't happen here either. It shouldn't happen here either. Pharaoh used his power. He used his position. He used the name of God. He used the names of so-called gods to manipulate and get what he wanted. That wasn't going to happen. Not anymore. It stops now, God is saying. So we're forbidden to use the image of God or to take his name in vain. And what's interesting is that we're also forbidden to destroy the image of God. Maybe you didn't see that or catch that in the very initial reading of the text this morning. If you skip down to verse 13, it says, you shall not murder. It says, you shall not murder. Have you ever noticed that connection that we're not permitted to take life? Why? Because man has been created in the image of God. So we're not, we're not to murder. We're not to take life. Why? Because they bear the image of God. God, in, in, in the book of Genesis, says that God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So why do we not, why, why do we not take uh, human life? Because they bear the image of Yahweh. This is where we get such a, a, a strong sense of the sanctity of human life. Not just in this passage, but it's firmly upheld through this passage. And that's why Christians throughout the years have been so for the preservation of life. In our culture today at large, some of the hottest issues that we face have to, have to do with the, the image of God and the sanctity of human life. And God is saying, I am the only God. And every human being is born and created in my image. And so see command one. He is God. You're not to take a life. And so we're not to create an image because we can't and we're not to destroy an image we're not permitted to and so as a church we see this we read this and we should call one another to stand and defend those who are those who are defenseless we are called to stand and and harbor those who have no place to go why why do we do that why do we look at a, a small child and say that they need a home they need a mother they need a father because it's sad? Well, yeah, it's sad. But why do we do that even more? The, the greater picture, right? Sadness goes away with joy, right? Eat some candy. Get a, get a lollipop from buyer Stop and Go. You'll feel better. But the image of God is still not cared for until we take in and defend those who don't have what they need. So as Christians, as a church, God's called us to that. It's beautiful. As, as I see, one of the most beautiful things that we'll see, and, and we'll end there today, discussing beauty. One of the most beautiful things that we'll get to see as a people in this life is the restoration of the beauty of God, the law of God, and, and it being fleshed out through his people as we take in those who are in need, as we defend those who are defenseless. It's a beautiful thing. Look down at the fourth commandment. We find that in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. And this is a very simple command, but it calls the worshiper, the worshiper, one of God's people, it calls them to stop and to depend on the Lord. It calls them to demonstrate that dependence, not just to talk about it, but to demonstrate it. And by the way, I want to throw this out there. Sabbath is not for when work is done. Oftentimes we say we will rest when we're dead. We say we'll rest when the work is done, and that's not Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest says, I will stop, I will rest, I will depend on God, I will push myself back from my desk and allow the Lord 
to sustain me. I love Psalm 3 where, it's, where David's saying, I, I, I'm being chased down. Everybody's against me. People hate me. I, I, I don't have time to rest. I definitely can't close my eyes. But then he says, wait a minute. I'm going to lay down and I'm going to sleep. And he says, he testifies and he says, when I woke up, I was still alive. And my enemies, they were still far from me. I had been protected. Why? Why does he say that? He says, because the Lord sustained me. And so as we Sabbath rest, whatever that looks like in your life, as we Sabbath, we don't stop when we have finished our work. We stop when God calls us to, and we depend on him in that moment. This is a commandment that God has given, and it stands in contrast to Egypt. It stands in contrast to Pharaoh. What was Pharaoh's call to the, to the people, right? You'll notice, I think it was in chapter 5, as Moses is talking to Pharaoh, and he's like, hey, this is what's going to happen. Just want to let you know, Yahweh, he's come to me, and he, he wants his people to be set free. I'm, I'm going I'm to be a part of that. I'm a conduit. I'm just going to speak to you. And uh, by the way, I'm not trying to, 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 to flex here, but if you don't let go, it's going to be really, really bad for you. So you should just let us go. And Pharaoh's like, oh, you want to get out? You want to take my workforce? You want to take the people that work hard for me to get what I want and what I need? Okay. What does Pharaoh do? He increases their burdens. He says, hey, don't gather to the taskmasters. Don't gather them straw anymore. Let's see what they can do without it. And he says, hey, by the way, don't lower their quota. Whereas before they were, they were enslaved, in bondage, working hard. They had to get this amount done. Pharaoh says, now make, hold them to that, but withhold resources. What does that do? Father, Entrepreneur, what does that do when the, the demands are raised, right, and the resources are depleted? What do you do? You work harder. That's what you do. You, you work harder. Why? Because it's, it's a dog-eat-dog world, right? You, you got to get yours. You got to work hard to get what you want. And you look around as you're working hard, as your hand is to the plow, and you say, what, what about these other chumps who are resting? They could have what I have. They won't be where I'll be because I'm working harder. That's the, that's the voice of Pharaoh in Egypt, and yet we hear the voice of God, and what does he say? Rest. Rest. There's no end to work. You'll never finish. You'll never complete it. Rest. Rest in me. I'll take care of you. I'll meet your needs. I'll sustain you. Rest. What a beautiful thing. The children of Israel, they hear this. Whatever they've been through, whatever, whatever the, the struggles they've had in that moment, they're thinking, wow, I've just learned quite a bit about Yahweh. He's he doesn't want me for what he can get out of me. That's not what, he's given me a day off. And it's beautiful. The leaders of the house, he says, don't let anybody in your house work. Not even the dogs. Everybody rests. Not, not, not the sojourner. That's, that's, you know, make them wash dishes because they're, they're staying in your home, using your spare bedroom, sleeping on your couch. No, rest, he says. And the children of Israel begin to learn about God and they say, this is a, this is a beautiful thing. What a, a God that, that doesn't want me for what I can give to him. A God that wants me because he's good. Think about that. And that's the God that you serve this morning. And I hope that's the God that you serve. A God that doesn't want to take from you. A God that wants to give to you. A God that doesn't look at you like you're some type of a resource. That he wants to just destroy and, and, and just squeeze the life out of. That's not what God sees when he looks at, it, at his people. He calls you to rest. Look down at verse 12. It says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. This, this command is the, is the first that deals with the horizontal plane. 
And so if you, if you think about that, we talked about the first four of, of, the, of the Ten Commandments dealt with your relationship with God directly. There, there's, there's no God, so don't have any other gods before him. Don't make graven images. Respect his name, honor it. Don't take it in vain, and don't make any carved image. And then he goes on to say, honor the Sabbath day. These are vertical relationship commands. Now we begin to work and, and look at these horizontal commands. That's how we relate to one another. They're laws that, that govern how we relate to one another. And so this is important as well. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. I love that, is giving to you. He's currently in the process of giving this to you. It's beautiful. What does he say here? He's saying that they are to respect, that they're to honor, that they're to even care for in their latter years their parents. I can see a direct, uh, or I, I, I can't necessarily see a direct rival to this idea in Egypt. Like we don't see in the Bible in Egypt um, just people just terribly treating their parents and dis- dishonoring them. As a matter of fact, um, there's actually a law that predates the Ten Commandments that was written by a, some leader, I can't remember his name, in Egypt that talked about the, the need to, to, to show respect to your parents as, as, a, as a child. Or, you know, as a descendant. Um, and so I can't necessarily find some uh, opposition there other than the fact that it's a self-serving world in Pharaoh's land. And remember, Pharaoh represents the world, and it's self-serving. And, I, and I, there's, a, there's a direct uh, connection between um, verse 12 and verse 14. It says, you shall not commit adultery. This is commandment number 7. And so uh, not only do the fifth and the seventh commandments have in common that they're about family, but there's more than that. It, it, it has to do with the fact they, they also have commitment and selflessness involved in there as well. So the fifth and the seventh, they have to do with family, commitment, and selflessness. And, and it's been said, you probably know this, that love is a battlefield, right? You've heard that before. I, I've heard it said that, that marriage is the great crucible of sanctification. It's a difficult journey to stay married, to, to work that out. As two people who are totally different come together, it's, it's a difficult task. As a child, I, I think of a, a young man who is born to lead. He's, he's born to be strong and to, to run fast and to, and to kill things, right? To kill uh, deer, I don't know, whatever. But he, he's born to lead, right? And then he's got his mom over, over him telling him what to do. And it's this struggle between like, I will be my own man one day. And she's like, not in this house, right? It, that, that, takes, that takes place. And my mom's smiling. But we see like this, the, the, the boy, he says, I, I will one day be a man, but he's not. The Bible says you're not to throw off the authority that God has placed over you. You're not to dishonor, to disrespect your parents. You're to care for them. This is a beautiful thing that God is calling the children of Israel to. As God calls them to it, there's, you might think, well, they weren't terrible, terrible people. You know, the, the children were probably well-behaved, and the, and, the, and the husbands and wives probably were, were faithful to one another, and that's probably true in Egypt. No, it's not. It's not true. Across all cultures, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish, it doesn't matter, Japanese, it doesn't matter. Definitely not American, right? We, we are the most disrespectful and, 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 and unfaithful country probably on the face of the earth when it comes to these two things, but it doesn't matter across all borders. This is an issue. And God is saying, that's the way of the world. It's not the way of Yahweh. It's not the way of the church. It's not, it's not the way that God intended. We talked about how disgusting and just gross 
The selfishness that we saw in Pharaoh and how his life is just a, a picture of everything that is terrible in this world. I want to contrast that just for a moment and, and, and show you my softer side. Have you ever been able to make it through the movie, The Notebook, without sobbing and just being just reduced to a puddle of soppy tears? Have you ever? As you get to the end and you see this man who has loved this woman for so long, and he's there with her, and what happens as he, he spends time with her all day, day in, day out? And what happens at the end, right? Some of you are, are tearing up. You know, like the holiness of God, all that stuff. I don't care about that. The notebook, what's that dude's name? Uh, but as you see at the end of that story, it's like, it's just beautiful. It's a picture of everything that is good and decent. It's a picture of everything that we want. And no matter what, you look at that and you say, that is beautiful. You say, children respecting their parents, that is gorgeous. You say, a, a man faithfully loving a woman for a long period, over the long haul, through all the thick, that, that is a gorgeous thing. And this is what God is saying. This is what God is calling his people to. And in the moment of truth, in the moment of consciousness, you'll look at this and you'll say, all of the Lord's laws are perfect and they're beautiful. When you're living in Egypt, you'll, you won't see that. You forget that. You don't even know it. Maybe it's foreign to you altogether. As you experience the law of the Lord, you say, that is beautiful. He goes on to say in verse 15, you shall not steal. 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 17, you shall not covet, against your, or covet your neighbor or anything that he has. In other words, he's saying, don't take from others, especially those who don't have anything. Don't lie about someone or something so you can get what you want. How depraved is that? How, how terrible. Stop getting sideways because somebody has more than you do. Better yet, in contrast to that, how disgusting those, those petty actions are. How beautiful is it when we see a different scene where people protect one another's integrity? where people protect one another's belongings, where, where people celebrate God's blessings, even if it's not on their own life, if it's on somebody else, they celebrate. That's a beautiful picture. And with all of these commandments all together, we look at them, and with David, the psalmist, I hope that you say, just as, as Corey read this this morning, that the law of the Lord, it's perfect. It revives our soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes us wise, even though we're simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. It makes our heart rejoice the commandments of the Lord are pure and they enlighten our eyes. They help us to see the fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord, they're true and they're righteous altogether. David says, they're more to be desired than gold. In Egypt, what's king? Gold. Money. Why? Because it gets, gets you what you want. Money has power that comes along with it. And David says, the laws of the Lord are more to be desired than gold, even if it's fine gold even if it's not the cheap stuff. He says they're sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Honeycombs are outdated. Nobody eats that for cereal or breakfast anymore. But the idea is that it's beautiful and it tastes good. And David's saying, when I've experienced it, when I've experienced it, I've lived under the laws of the Lord, I flourished and I found joy. And I, I love verse 11. He says, moreover, by them is your servant warned and in keeping them, there is great Reward. David says, in keeping them, there is great reward. So in Egypt, the ruler was deposed. He was defeated. He was silenced. But the laws that he had constructed were present in the mind of the Israelites until Sinai. 
And God says, that's the old law. That's the, that's the old rule. That's the old way of life. And I've got a new one for you this morning. What? That's awesome. How awesome is that? That God would give a new law. And while I say that with one side of my mouth, that, that is awesome, I also say, how terrible. And here's why. How can we keep that? How can I keep that? How can I keep the law of the Lord? As, the, as God tells the Israelites that, they, they shrink back in fear and they begin to tremble and they say, don't let him talk to us anymore. We can't handle it. We're afraid of him. Why? Because we can't keep this. Maybe that's you this morning. As you are at Sinai and you hear God saying, hey, I am holy, therefore you need to be holy. Maybe you push back and you're afraid. If, you, if that's you this morning, I, I understand that. The Bible doesn't leave us there. So many times, Christianity, the Bible is characterized as that's what it is, that God is saying, be holy as I'm holy, end of story, nothing more. And that's not the case. See, there was a mountain called Sinai where the people of God came and and witnessed God do a wonder. There was another mountain as well, and that is Calvary. And that is where we'll end our time together this morning. So we're not holy There's not one here this morning that would say after that barrage of commands that I can still stand, I can still hold my head up here. It doesn't matter who you are. The Bible is clear that you cannot say, that's easy, I've done it. It's not true. Every single one of us have broken likely every single one of these commands. And at the end of the day, if you say somehow you've you've kept one of them, I would say the foundational law you have broken. The law that it stands on, you've broken. You've not loved God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you've not loved your neighbor like you've loved yourself. That's the truth. So we all are laid bare. We're all broken before the Lord. Read with me what Romans chapter 3 says, starting in verse 20. It says, For the works of the law, the Ten Commandments and more, no human being will be justified in his sight. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What he's saying here is this, that as far as the law of God was concerned for us, it was effective only in proving that we are sinners and in need of a sacrifice. That's, that's what the law of God is effective for. Yes, now, I, I don't want to say that's the only thing it's good for. It's also, it is good for us to show us the path of life. It's good to show us the way that we should go. But its chief effective idea is that it has proved to us that we are sinners. It demonstrates the seriousness of sin and that we have fallen short before a holy God. So there's, uh, there's no scale, by the way. Oftentimes, another misconception in Christianity is that there's some type of a scale. As if to say, if, if you tell one lie and then you have the chance to tell ten, but you don't, now the ten truths have now outweighed that one lie. Do you see how faulty that is? It's like saying to a judge, uh, the judge says, what do you have to say for yourself? You killed somebody last year. Yes, judge, I have. But I've, I've ran into 17 people, four of them who I despised, and I haven't killed a one of them. That's ridiculous. There's no, I kept it for now such a good long while, and now these things just roll off. That's not how it works. It's not points on a license. It's totally different. We have all fallen short before a holy God. And what's interesting is that God has also given the sacrificial system as a contemporary idea here at the same time, right? He's just instituted the Passover. He's just told them and instructed them and shown the beauty of how a lamb could substitute, a pure lamb, the lamb of God, could substitute for you and take your sins. 
He just demonstrated that to them. Let's keep reading them. Verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. He said, he says, you, you, nobody has ever seen the law produce righteousness. It's never happened. But then it says, now the righteousness, although the law, I'm sorry, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest. Let's read and find out how it did. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Listen, everyone has broken his commands. There's not one left. And are justified by his grace, in verse 24, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So church, the good news is this. That at Sinai, we heard God say, because I am, you must be. But the good news is this. At Calvary, Jesus calls and says, because I am, you can be. Do you hear that? This is good news. This is the gospel. Last week we looked at uh, Jesus' claims to be deity, that he claimed to be God. He said, I am. In that statement, he, he's connecting back to Genesis 3, say, or to Exodus 3, saying, I am Yahweh. God the Father demands you to be holy. Jesus is saying, I, God the Son, make you holy. I make it possible. That's good news. That's the gospel. Jesus is calling out to you, and he's saying to you this morning, I have fulfilled the whole law. Would you come to me? I fulfilled all 613 perfectly. I've made a way for you to worship the Lord, to worship God, to worship Yahweh. And will you do that? Because I am holy, he's saying. If you place your trust in me, you also can be holy. So this morning, the good news is this. The offer is there. God is whispering. Can you hear him? Forget the voice of Pharaoh, of selfishness, of pride, of personal gain. Listen to the voice of Jesus. Don't delay. Call out to Jesus. Listen, church, he will forgive you. It doesn't matter who you are. Listen to me. If you call out in faith to Jesus, he will forgive you of your sins. That's a beautiful promise. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. He will forgive you. He makes it possible. I want to work to close here. If, if you know me at all, you know that I love the, the Chronicles of Narnia. I love those books. They're, they're powerful. They're children's books, but it seems as though they grow with you as you get bigger. And they become even more and more beautiful as you read them. It's just, it, there's some wonderful stuff going on there. My favorite character is Eustace Scrub. And he, he, he almost deserved that name, right? He's a terrible person. He struggled to do right. He was so entranced and so enamored by Pharaoh and by Egypt he treated everybody as if they were there to worship himself. He got to the point where he saw, began to see the effect of his life. He began to realize the laws, as it were, of God. And he said, I can't, I can't do it. And so he tries harder. He tries to become, to be, to become the person that he should be. He, he tries to atone for what he's done wrong. And at the end of the day, after all of his struggles, after all of his work, do you know what he has? Do you know what he is? He's tired. That's it. He's not made any progress. He's not, pulled, he's not atoned for any of his own sins. He's not even kept any of the laws that God has laid out for him. As a matter of fact, he's just tired. That's all he has. Maybe you're here this morning, that's you. You say, I, 
I've come here this morning. I'm thirsty. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I feel like I've been attacked. I feel like I've been beat down. I feel like I have nowhere to go. I feel like I've followed the, the rules of the world for too long. I don't know what's up. If that's you here this morning with Eustace, you're just tired. I'm here to say that the Lord, the Lamb of God, behold him. He's taken away the sins of the world. If you place your trust in him, if you'll repent of your sins and trust him for forgiveness, you can be holy. You can worship God. You can be pure and righteous. And so to the white knuckler this morning who just holds on and says, I'm going to try harder, my, my, my encouragement to you is trust in Jesus. On your own, you'll just get tired. To the legalist this morning who says, I, I, I think I can obtain righteousness with God through the law. I would say, see Romans 3. You're just going to be tired. Stop it. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Jesus. He will give you rest. To the non-Christian this morning, I don't know what's up. I don't know if I believe in this. I don't know, if I, I don't know what I believe in anymore. If that's you here this morning, trust Jesus. On your own, you'll just be tired. You'll just be tired. To the one living in opposition to the laws of God, though you know them to be true, taste and see that the Lord is good. You remember. See Psalm 19. It's beautiful. It's righteous altogether. And so all of you this morning, I want to quote the words of Jesus. This is not the words of Josh. This is the words of Jesus. Come unto me, all that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't that a beautiful promise that we have this morning? As we close, I want to say one thing. I want to end here. We we talked about this idea that, that God's laws are the way of life. That's what he's called us to do. And just because Jesus filled them doesn't mean we work uh, to enjoy them as well but in Christ we enjoy the laws we don't suffer through them do you understand that in, in Christ we work to fulfill the law now, I shouldn't say work we enjoy the law but to some of you this morning you might say well that's not me in my past there is wreckage I know that the laws of God are beautiful I know that when you live a righteous life, when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and when you love your neighbor as yourself, I know that it leads to a beautiful picture. It leads to a beautiful existence. And I would agree with you, that's true. But for most of us, that's not our story. We've had a broken road in our past. We've had many things that we're not proud of. Not just have we fallen short, but we have ran the other way at many times. So we would say our... Our lives are nothing like this. Our lives aren't, you might say today, Pastor Josh, my life is not beautiful. It's broken. It's destroyed. And I want to come to Jesus and I want to be made holy. But what, about the, what about the wreckage in the past? What about all this? And I would, I, would, I, would, I would submit to you this. What's more beautiful? What could possibly be more beautiful than a life lived to God in perfect obedience to his law. What could be more beautiful than that? You might say nothing. And I would say maybe. But I think there's one thing that might give it a run for its money. And that's when that something has been crushed, has been built back up. Not to almost its former state, but to its former state as good. And that's what what Christ offers us today. Not just that, you know what? It's going to be okay. No, he says, it's not just going to be okay. It's going to be as good as it was. So what's more beautiful than a life lived to God from the beginning of perfect holiness? Well, I think the fact that he could restore, that he could redeem what's been ruined has been restored. A life that is lost is returned in full 
And church, that's the offer this morning. That's what's more beautiful than, than the laws, the fact that the laws would be fulfilled in us, not through us, or not by us, but in us through Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for these truths this morning as we look at your testimonies. We say together in song, we say together in prayer that your laws are beautiful, that your words are pure. And they help us to see and they help us to walk. At the end of the day, while they are beautiful, they're something that we cannot fulfill on our own. They're something that we can't uh, keep on our own. And so while we want what's beautiful, we oftentimes find ourselves in what is ugly and what is gross. Broken relationships and broken families. With hurts and scars and hopelessness. And in all of that, you speak over that and you say, I will make something more beautiful. And God, we thank you for that, for this truth. God, this morning as we walk as a people, would you help us to walk in your law? Would you help us to believe it's beautiful? Would you help us to see and taste that it's wonderful, that it's gorgeous? And God, for those who have not walked in that, would you help them to taste and see the beauty of Jesus and what he offers this morning? Jesus, this morning we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and we thank you for that. Would you bless us this morning as we lift up your name, as we go out into this world. We look to you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.